one of my favorite rituals growing up in Sweden was gathering every Christmas morning to eat rice porridge with cinnamon. The big twist was that in the big pot of porridge was one single almond waiting for the family member who were lucky to find it in their bowl. And that lucky family member that sometime was me was given an extra special wish for the coming year. We all have our different rituals and that's what we'll explore in today's episode with the wonderful Nick Hobson. Nick has not only long studied the rituals of our everyday lives, but he has also run a successful consultancy helping organizations to better understand and leverage rituals in order to boost customer loyalty and retention. If you also happen to recognize his voice, it's because Nick is the host of the fantastic podcast, It's All Just a Bunch of BS. This was a really fun conversation where we nerd out about all things rituals, habits and routines, where we do our best to compare and contrast the three. We also talk about the IKEA effect and our favorite IKEA food, plus much more. It's honestly one of my favorite episodes so far, and it was actually recorded way back. But because of my greatest nemesis, the planning fallacy, it's been delayed a bit because it also comes with this interactive case study that I've been working on and it can be found in the show notes. I must say that it does feel fitting to release this episode now in the midst of the holidays and the New Year celebrations. Because after all, what other time of the year is so filled with rituals? So you can now begin with whatever ritual you have for enjoying a good podcast and I'll get this episode started. Let's go. Welcome, Nick. It seems like the table has turned. Uh, I was interviewed on your wonderful A Bunch of BS podcast last year, and uh, now you're here. How does it feel to be on the other side? I'm sweating. I feel I feel a bit nervous. Um, we were talking just before, and you have you are in the position to to make me feel very nervous and uncomfortable with with the questions, and to get back at me for all the tough questions I asked you. So no, but I'm I'm I'm, I'm happy to be here, and I'm, it sounds like a fascinating fascinating project that you're that you're starting. So so I'm thrilled that you considered me to, to come on. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of good reciprocity uh, in place since before, so I think we should be fine. But um, I think we should just kind of jump in here. And so can you tell me what the heck is uh, Ritual Science Design? Yes. Ritual Science Design is the framework that I use in a lot of the projects I do with my past and current clients. And it was really born out of the work I'd done in grad school as part of my master's and PhD work. So that was on the psychology and neuroscience of ritual. And I actually came into it having studied for about a decade prior to that, the uh, psychology and the cognitive neuroscience of religion and religious belief. And so religion and ritual are sort of, uh, they go hand in hand. And in fact, anytime you hear the word ritual, what often comes to mind for a person is 
the the religious context, the the ritual prayers, the the rites, the the, the ceremonies, the celebrations, the traditions that are very much uh, a, a hallmark of of any religion that you can think of. And so I went from studying religion purely to re, uh, rituals within religion. And then towards the end of my PhD, I, I started to collaborate with some business school professors at Harvard and Chicago Booth. And uh, and then we started studying more secular style rituals. And then that finally, when, when I left my PhD, I started to do consulting work. And I'm just obsessed with ritual. And at the time, I was like, how can I leverage these insights? Um to drive impact for the clients I was I was working with. And it was sort of two obvious contexts where I could see that happening. One is in culture change and organizational culture. So the types of organizational and empl- uh, rituals that, that employees engage in as part of the workplace and in their organizations. And then two is in the consumer uh, context or the customer experience context where uh, what are the types of rituals that consumers, customers, and users engage in when it comes to various products or services? So that was the that was the, the background. Now the trick was and still is is w- getting at the similarities between ritual with a big R, capital R ritual of religion and like culture, and the ones that have been around for hundreds of thousands and ten, tens of thousands of years, and and talking about rituals with a lowercase r in organizations in consumer contexts because at first blush you say those things are totally different yes we have the same word ritual to refer to them but they're different behaviors they're different cognitions different sets of emotions so why are you even talking about them um, in the same way so i push back on that and say there is a common underlying psychology and neurobiology that underlies all ritual capital r ritual and lowercase r ritual in the context. So ritual side design is really relying on the assumption that all rituals are the same at some level of psychology in the brain. And that if that's the case, we can, we can pull on certain insights from the science to, uh, to affect employee and and consumer behavior. This is super interesting. And obviously (laughs) you have created this case study that everyone can kind of check out as well. It's available. It will be in the show notes, and hopefully, you've already seen the case study. Uh, otherwise, you can check it out. Uh, but yeah, it's super interesting. And what I'm curious about, in terms of maybe the the small letter R rituals, <laughs> like what are the more common ones that maybe people don't think about as being rituals, but are very common in in the world? Yeah, good good question. So outside of religious context, I would go to anytime you have a, a holiday. Um, so Christmas or, you know, Easter. So I'm thinking of like more like Christian holidays, but, um, holidays that are secular and non-religious, they will often Thanksgiving, they'll often be accompanied by certain rituals or traditions. And these words share a lot of overlap. There's similarities, but there are differences as well. Hmm. Um, maybe one that's a little bit more trivial, but, but still speaks to it is, um, brushing your teeth. So uh, we all brush our teeth, hopefully, most of us. And uh, that behavior can either be construed, it's a repeat behavior, so it's a pa- what we call a patterned behavior, but that behavior can be construed as either habit slash routine, or for some people, uh, ritual. So, and this is, this is work that comes from my collaborator, Mike Norton, and uh, I had him on the, the show and we were, we were sort of riffing on this point, but it's a great, it's a great way to, to point to the example. And that is, do you brush your teeth 
this is a question he asked people and surveyed, and I'll ask you, Sam. Do you brush your teeth before you go into the shower or after you come out of the shower in the morning? After. After. So you shower first, then you brush your teeth. Yeah. You actually survey people, you know, represented a sample within the US, about about 80% or about 90% are either one of those two and it's right down the middle so 45 percent are brush teeth and shower 45 percent are shower then brush teeth and then there's the weird 10 percent of people who do it both who do both at the same time right. toothbrush is in the shower uh, and they multitask and do it together so now if you were to ask the person why do you do it in that order most people don't have a good answer they just say i don't know it's just it's just what i do and if you were to press them and say, okay, Sam, I want you to actually reverse that order and I want you to brush your teeth first, then shower after. If your response to that was, yeah, okay, sure. Like, no problem. I don't, I don't really care. It's, it's sort of a moot point, but I'm going to give it a try. Same, same outcome. I'm, I'm clean and my teeth are clean. That's a habit. That's a routine because you're still doing the behavior for some sort of instrumental or rational based outcome, which is being clean. <laughs> um, but if you were to really push back and say, no way, that's, that's what I do. That's the order that I do it in. That's the way I've always done it. I don't know when I started it, but it's always been the way it is. And if you were sort of, if you push back on that, or if you felt a little bit of a sort of a, a pang in your, in your stomach that, that said, <clears throat> I don't like the way that sounds, or I don't like the way that's going to make me feel, then you're starting to sort of get into ritual territory. And one of the, the key defining features of ritual is this, the scrupulosity or the, the rigidity that comes with it. It's, there's a ritual script. You have to do it this way, and there's no room for change. There's no room for improvisation, even though the sequences, i.e. brush teeth, then shower, or whatever it is, have no direct bearing on the desired outcome, which is just to be clean. So if you take that logic, and it's, they call it in the literature of academia, they call it causal opacity. The cause and effect, the action and the outcome, those two things are tied in a sort of opaque or non-transparent, irrational type way. If you take that logic and you apply it to any behavior which might be construed ritual, you'll see that same sort of rationalization in the individual. When you ask them, why do you do it that way? It doesn't make any sense. They say, that's just the way we do it. That's just the way it's done. So Cool. And so I was going to come to this a little bit later, but I feel like this is the time. So <laughs> let's see if we can figure out what is the difference between a habit, a routine, and a ritual. Like once and for all, maybe you and I can figure out this you know, constant question that I often hear and I'm often obviously yes. uh, part of having to answer. And so let, let's start to kind of maybe distinguish them. Because uh, maybe what will be interesting for me is here, kind of what, what do you see the difference being with uh, routine versus a ritual? Good. And I actually realized, how did I not realize this? This is like a holy shit moment. This is the, the, the ritual guy versus the habit guy. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we'd have something like a, it's like a it's like a boxing match or something. Yeah. Um, so yeah, exactly. Um, they're both important, I will say. Um, so all fall all fall under the category of um, patterned repeat repeat behaviors, um, and vary on a degree of sort of a dimension of unconscious versus conscious. So so what makes them different? Uh, so there are three 
criteria, three defining criteria of ritual that that really distinguish them from uh, routine or habit. And then even the difference between routine and habit is is also important. But maybe just to start, we can look at ritual. Mm-hmm. So, and we, I already talked about one, but I'll sort of revisit it again. So, a, a ritual, and this was in the in the case study. Um, a, a ritual is, and I'll, I'll, this is sort of burned into my brain, is a predefined set of behaviors that are characterized by rigidity, formality, and repetition. So that's feature one. Uh, that are in, embedded in a system of symbolism and meaning. That's feature two, which partially lack direct instrumental or rational purpose. And that's feature or criteria three. So in order for it to be a ritual and not a habit or routine or some other um, rational behavior, it has to have some degree of all three of those things. So if you go back to the, if you go back to the toothbrushing one, which is, which is always a fun one, you get check is a is there it's predefined behaviors um, that are characterized by rigidity and formality and repetition. So let's focus on that for a second. Mm -hmm. If you brush your teeth and you're not really sort of conscious of the of the sequence, you just kind of go around and blah, 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 and you, you do this and that, and then before you know it, you're done, it's a minute later, then that's that's doesn't count as as being ritual. Whereas some people who brush, and I do know this, people do this, um, people who brush their teeth, they start on the left side, they move to the right, go to the top, move to the bottom. And it's always left, right, top, bottom. It's never right, left, bottom, top has no bearing on the eventual outcome again so it's predefined they have their ritual script that they follow um and then it's also lacking instrumental purpose because as i said there's no reason for them to do it that way but they still feel compelled there's a there's a compulsion their feet they feel pulled to do it in, in that way because that's the way that they've always done it and that's the way that they feel is going to make them f- feel better emotionally most put them in this, into a state of emotional comfort or a readiness for the day. That's what a lot of people cite when you ask them about their pre uh, sort of pre work. Um, this is when we leave the house and go to the office uh, morning rituals is that it just makes me feel ready for the day. I can't explain it. It just helps. So there's sort of this readiness. And then finally, the second, the second feature or criteria there, which is the symbolism and meaning that one's a little bit tricky because some people might argue it's tooth, it's teeth, it's, you're brushing your teeth, it's toothbrushing, it has no meaning or sim- symbolism. But I would argue it does. If a person feels ready as, simply because they did the ritual as, they're, as they ought to do it, left, right, bottom, top, they walk away from that experience, they look at themselves in the mirror, smile, and they have that degree of confidence to start their day, that's meaning. And people will actually rank those behaviors as more meaningful as a result. So that's one example. I'll pause there because there's lots of different directions we can go to compare ritual to these other behaviors, but that's like the lowest level. And then with ritual, when you have what's called minimal ritual, and that's how I studied these things in in a laboratory context when I was a student, a grad student, you have minimal ritual, and then you sort of just layer these things on top, and the ritual grows and grows and grows. It becomes more emotionally laden. It becomes more symbolic. The meaning gets added to it. Not to mention, if, if it's an actual cultural ritual, it gets embedded within a history, within a people, within a holy book. It gets passed down from tradition, from parents to, ch- to child or children across multiple generations, hundreds, thousands of years later. You can imagine just how meaningful and big and sacred and holy those rituals are. So I, I went from 
teeth brushing to to the big ones, but I hope you can see my my leap there. Yeah, and so this is very interesting. So obviously, I use tooth brushing as an example of a habit, right? Uh, and so this is interesting to kind of like compare and contrast a little bit of mm-hmm. how we maybe language we use. Mm-hmm. And so usually, like the habit language, the reason why you would like talk about brushing your teeth as being a habit. It's always because you have usually a very context-dependent cue, maybe that you're, you know, in the bathroom at a certain time in the morning, for example. Uh, maybe also after having done the behaviors, so like after having showered, for example, or after having had a breakfast. Um, that's kind of the, the context-driven cue. And then you have this behavior, which needs to be automatic for it to be classified as a habit, right? And so it's not something you do consciously, but kind of thoughtlessly. Um, and so, and then the last thing is you have this, call it positive consequence i usually say like you can also call it a reward but i like the word positive consequence because it's, it's a little more nuanced to that word mm-hmm. and so usually what you talk about is either that like it, it removes something kind of bad and or it adds something kind of good so for example brushing your teeth it removes the kind of maybe the bad feeling of having a kind of morning coffee breath uh, and it adds also this kind of feeling of feeling maybe uh, refreshed and and maybe your teeth you know look a little bit wider or maybe at least you have a nicer kind of breath and so mm-hmm. that's kind of nice thing to have as you start the day mm-hmm. uh so that's very kind of that's kind of the, beha- the behavioral uh, habit language uh, mm-hmm. and so what i hear is that you in some ways look at these kind of things uh this sequence and add some components that are maybe not considered uh used from a pure kind of habit perspective uh, especially with for something like meaning um, having the kind of symbolism and meaning, obviously that's not really considered, um, and not really, habits are not really distinguished based on that fact at all. Like you can have people do a lot of different habits, but no one usually in the habit literature cares about if they feel a meaning or symbolism to that or not, for example. Uh, obviously like rigidity, formality, and repetition is there. Like that's, that's definitely there. <laughs> so that they definitely have that in common, right? And, and then probably what's, what's a little bit interesting mm-hmm. to consider is this kind of like partial lacking of a direct instrumental purpose, I think you said. And uh, and so I guess that's a, there's a lot of habits that we do that we do not really for a direct instrumental purpose, right? We we do them for maybe they've like become a solution to a problem we had when we were a kid or when we were used to moving into our apartment or whatever we kind of faced this problem the first time. And that's this has become the kind of the behavior that solves the problem. Uh, and we do it, uh, we even maybe started doing it without thinking about it much, and we still do it without thinking about it that much. Um, so a lot, I guess a lot of behaviors are, or habits especially, are uh, also without kind of lack direct instrumental purpose. So would you say that kind of the main thing is within the symbolism and meaning, or or how would you kind of untangle what I've said? Yeah, that's a great point, um, especially the one that I want to reiterate is is that habits can lack that direct instrumental purpose so you think of think of many bad habits um smoking for instance is probably one that depending on how you sort of structure that argument and lay it out you could construe it as totally lacking in instrumental or it's a totally ir- irrational behavior on the maybe in the long run i could you could see it that way so i agree with you on that one for sure um the the one that I actually didn't mention, but you sort of brought it up, is the level of conscious versus unconscious activity in the, the mm-hmm. release of that that particular behavior. 
as you mentioned, as we know with habits, it's, it is this sort of, it's a, as I said, it's a release. It's mostly automated. It's mostly habituated. That's the sort of almost the Mm. core definition or one of the core definitions Uh, with ritual. (laughs) And this is debated, but I will bring it up anyway, is that there's two camps. There's the one camp that says rituals are totally conscious and have a level of intention to them. Um, And I'm sort of in that camp as well. Uh, I believe that when a ritual is done properly or as it should be done for the person, for the practitioner, that they do it with full conscious awareness. Um, So that's also a big distinguishing factor between habit and ritual. And then the other one that I will push back on for your operationalization of habit is the rigidity aspect. While there is the the repetition, while there is the sameness to it, if you were to, here's another way you can look at it. If you took a particular behavior and you interrupted it, or if you altered the sequence of those behaviors and the person was, or the people, often these things happen in groups, of course, and the person or people were okay with the altered sequence, like the toothbrushing and showers order, and they didn't feel a sense of anxiety having changed the order, that's probably more habit. But if the, because again, they're like, I don't care. I'm just getting, I'm getting the same outcome, which is this totally fine. But if you proposed a possible change to an individual or group of people to make, to make, to not just to change the ritual, but to actually make it better or safer, people react very strongly and negatively to that. So we have a, we have a paper. I'm just lucky to be involved in it as a sort of a collaborator, but it's being led by Dan Stein, who's a PhD student at UC Berkeley Haas and uh, his, his, um, him and his, his uh, mentor advisor, Juliana Schroeder. And we basically, hopefully coming out in the next couple months, but basically we find in like 10 studies that when you alter people's, and these are more group rituals, when you alter people's group collective rituals, and this includes religious and secular practices, people get really pissed off. They don't like the change and they will find the person who's responsible for the change, even if it's a leader. And they will uh, punish them and they will <laughs> okay. be very quick to punish them. And in a couple of studies, we found that that happens even if the intention behind the desired change is good. So uh, this, the one example we did is with um, male circumcision. So male circumcision is still quite popular in, in many religions, mostly Judaism, uh, to some extent Christianity and to a lesser extent, but still there in Islam. And if we actually went and said, look, Imagine uh, there is a head of your sort of your your church or your mosque synagogue, and they're pushing to make the circumcision rite or ritual safer and more uh, hygienic. Because right now it's actually not it's sort of not in line with practices of like health hygiene and, and health proper health behaviors, um, and it can be risky and dangerous for the for the child. Um, if you do that, they say yes, that makes total sense. It's safer, it's better, but I hate you and don't dare you try and change that ritual on me. So that's religious, that's a group level, Mm -hmm. but it's that same psychology. It's that same sort of reaction when you ask a person to change the ritual in any way, even if it's a tiny, tiny difference. And I think that's that's the rigidity or what some Kristen, um, Kristen Bell in her book on ritual called it a scrupulous adherence to the ritual script. That's great. Well, I think so. On one end, you can feel like, well, we have talked about this really specific, you know, 
uh, <laughs> detail thing of like what what the heck does it matter like habits rituals uh, routines and so on but I do think there are value maybe this is me kind of having some form of uh, self-serving bias here trying to make this work but I do think that the main key for I guess people listening is that it's obviously matter like when you're trying to change something uh, what we often do is we look at all behaviors being the same and we kind of group most behaviors into at least one big category. And then uh, more, so this last couple of years, people have talked more about habits as well. It's kind of a, a second maybe category as well. Like, well, we can change behaviors and then we can change habits. And that's like two things we can change in terms of two big categories. But obviously like behavior is super complex. And there are so many ways we can define different types of, you know, yeah, behavior, behavioral patterns or, or different types of behavior. So, uh, for me, actually, when I first started thinking about this was when I uncovered this old, I think, paper by, I don't know if it's even published, but it's it's this paper by B.J. Fogg where he tries to do this behavioral grid and he categorizes behaviors based on, mm. so if it's something you start, stop, increase, decrease, or and maintain. And so that's like one side of the matrix and then the other side is, I'm trying to remember now, but yeah, it's if a one-time behavior uh, kind of a span behavior or a, like from now on, like a habitual behavior. And so like that was really interesting because he started to like break down different types of behaviors and like maybe for these kind of, he called like black spot was like stop something one time. Then we maybe should use different strategies than for something that's, you know, let's say what I think was like, let's say blue, I'm trying to remember the different coding here, but blue arrow, which I think was a span behavior uh, that was really linked to like increasing something mm. like increasing like exercising more like not going from not exercising at all but maybe doing like one more repetition or one more uh session for example mm. and so i think this is a hugely underrated part of the field in terms of understanding what is the difference between these different types of behaviors and i think he probably realized that with his kind of very advanced grid that it was somewhat more complex than useful in many cases but i do think we should get a little mm. more specific sometimes and i think this is a good example of like where it is actually very valuable to think about the difference of, you know, habit versus ritual, because obviously, if you're trying to change something, let's say we want to change someone's behavior relating to brushing their teeth. Obviously, the way some people purely do it for like in a purely habitual way. But if we assume that everyone does it in that way, and maybe don't consider the, those kind of ritual components, uh, and vice versa, right, then we can end up with a much less effective intervention. In the end. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. And I've, I'm here, here, I'm fully on board with that with that analysis. In, in, in academia, especially in social psychology, which is my tradition and my training, uh, we're often criticized for splitting hairs and for coming up with new definitions upon new definitions and what they call are you you're a lumper or a splitter in science. And social psychologists, which is like kind of <laughs> yeah. like behavioral scientists, we're splitters. We're like, here we have this behavior. Let's split it into four. And this is called this, and this one's called that. Whereas another person's like, you're an idiot. Like, it's all the same thing. It's just one behavior. So that's academia. But then there's like sort of the new field of, of applied behavioral science and behavioral strategy design, where I think they are overly lumping. They're saying like, here's this behavior. Here's this thing like called behavior. And as you said, with, with the BJ Fogg framework, that's, that is the level of nuance that we need to tailor our approaches and our interventions so that we see 
the highest impact. So that we see the biggest, you know, change, the biggest delta. Now, I think there's an actually, a, I think there's a happy in between. I don't think it's, it's just behavior. And this one toolkit approach will move the needle. No, I don't think we need to be as granular or in the weeds as the social psychologists <laughs> in academia. Let them do that. That's fine. Right. Let, let some PhD student really get into the nitty gritty of ritual. And then he can come down into the real world and <laughs> like, and do this. Um, so I think, I think it's a really good point, Sam. Um, and I think it's going to be somewhere in the middle. And I was just trying to think of a, of, of an example. Yeah. To your point, like if you took, if you had a product, let's say, I mean, let maybe let make this a little bit more practical for some of your listeners um, who are like, what is, what are they talking about? Um, if you took like a, a product or a product experience and you wanted you, you as the, the product owner or the consultant who's coming on the project, you wanted to habituate the use of that product or that service. You wanted to build a habit around it. The types of little nudges and interventions that you're going to apply to encourage that ideal optimal behavior is going to be very different than if you want that same user to experience and interact with that same product in a ritual way and just take the conscious versus unconscious thing to begin with like if you want it to be a ritual for the different for whatever different reasons then you're going to encourage through the design of that of that of that um experience of that sort of customer or product experience, you're going to, to be constantly highlighting, aware, making person aware of what they're doing, bring it to their conscious awareness, having it being a little bit effortful even. And so this is a point um, that I've been talking about lately with friction. Everyone seems to be talking about friction and I get it. It, it like, it works for the most part, but not, not in every case. Um, there are times where a little bit of friction is good. And I think ritual is one of those things. Um, my advisor, Mickey Inslicht, and his, some of his co-authors two years ago, they, they have this paper called The Effort Paradox, where they make the argument that there are plenty of behaviors, both individualized and social behaviors, that involve a great degree of effort and are even costly to the individual, psychologically costly, physically costly, painful, harmful. And we still do them, and often we do them all the time, and they signal value. They're of high value to us. So bringing that into the context of a product and, and customer experience, there are plenty of instances where you want more friction, not less, because it's actually going to lead to a better outcome if you ritualize that experience vis-a-vis friction or effort, which I think is the same thing. Yeah. Well, actually, what I think would be great is that, can we talk about IKEA, please? <laughs> yeah, we have to, right? <laughs> so so I feel like that's something we really need to get into now. Uh, yeah. And so, obviously, in the case that you touched upon a little bit of IKEA and what they do, but please, could you maybe tell me a little bit more about like what, what does I- IKEA do that's great in terms of from a ritual perspective? Mm-hmm. So IKEA is a great case example because they have these things that are a part of the the brand experience and a part of the the retail experience and even the at-home experience that were designed. I I don't know. It's it's been like, you know, 20, 30 years. I I don't know if they had somebody on the team being like, rituals are important. Probably not. I think they just stumbled upon some, some of these things that worked. And now here I am applying post hoc this ritual analysis after the fact, right? 
And that's very common in a lot of these sort of great case examples is they stumbled, they stumbled upon the, 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 the effectiveness and the utility and the value of, of ritual, but they did it by accident or they did it sort of inadvert, inadvertently. Uh, so that's the first thing I'll say. Now, specifically with, with IKEA, the first thing is when you go to IKEA. I've only been to IKEAs in North America and US and in Canada. I don't know if it's the same in, in Europe or global. I think it is where they have the walking map of the marketplace. I've is been it, to IKEAs on three continents. Three co- and is it the same? It's pretty much the same. Yeah. So I've been in Sydney, in Sweden, obviously, and then in the US. Okay. That's good to know. And, and again, it's, it's by design and it's so smart. You go in and unlike another retail setting, especially one that's sort of like furniture or homeware, where in those ones, you can kind of decide where you go. You go down this aisle, you go down that one, and then you peruse and you move around and you meander back and forth. With IKEA, there are arrows on the floor and they make it very difficult to not follow that one and only direction. So that talks, that's the sort of the rigidity element. That's the, that's the, that we going back to the, to our definition of ritual. Um, and you would, I can imagine at the time, whoever thought of this, they were probably like, you're insane. You're removing a person's freedom of, to, 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 of mobility to move around a store. And instead you're herding them like cattle through, you know, so, so on the surface, it doesn't make any sense on the surface. It's friction on the surface. It, it, they shouldn't have done it and they did. And it works beautifully and it's magic. So that's, that's the first sort of component that I see as ritual. The food. Can I just squeeze in one thing? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so why don't you think more stores have that layout? That's an interesting question. I don't know. I feel like, I feel like if some other retail store location did it, they would, it would be seen as like perceptions of brand inauthenticity. They would be like, it would be stealing from Ikea. Mm -hmm. And we know from other research that that's a bad thing for a lot of brands. So I think what, what Ikea has done an amazing job with that is that it's ownable. They've, they've owned the experience. It's, it's so Ikea and you just don't see it anywhere else. And maybe I can just plant this and we can come back to it when it comes to creating rituals from new, from scratch, which is what are the work I do as part of ritual side design, one of the biggest barriers and one of the biggest concerns when you come, when you talk to target audience and consumers and customers is that if you, if they feel like the behavior is inorganic, inauthentic, stolen or borrowed wholesale, they don't like it. And there'll be a very low adoption rate with that ritual behavior. It has, and this sort of ties back into the meaning. It has to be unique. It has to be owned and it has to be sort of, yeah, it has to feel real. So another important part with ritual. That's a good question, though. Um, and then the food is is hilarious, and I love it, and everyone loves it. And food, not surprisingly, is one of the domains of human behavior where ritual is. It's highly ritualized. It always has been. It's probably one of the first. I'm talking about like our ancestors, million tens of millions of years ago, when we first started to develop ritual and religious proto religious behaviors. There is argument. There's reason to believe that they probably it probably centered around food, food preparation and food consumption. And just as a quick aside, the reason is because ingesting food would have been a very dangerous activity back in the day. And rituals, one of the main purposes of ritual is to alleviate anxiety and to put us sort of in a vigilant state because we're consciously aware. So if you prepare a food in a very particular step by step and scrupulously adhering to those steps 
you feel like it's going to be more safe to consume and ingest. And not surprising, most religions have their food prescriptions like halal and kosher for those exact reasons. So Ikea does the food thing. It's, it's very religious, the Ikea experience. What's your favorite Ikea dish? If you had to... <laughs> I would say the hot dogs. Those, <laughs> you know, the boiled hot Me dogs? Me too! <laughs> well, like, honestly, sure. it's one of those things where it's... Like, I don't think I've ever left like shopping at Ikea without, you know, after the checkout, going to buy a hot dog. I, I don't know. It's just like... It's just a satisfying feeling of it being really cheap and tasting pretty good at the same time. And uh, I think as well as like I partly lived on that in the end of my high school years because uh, <laughs> I was living quite close to, to an IKEA. I was working, I was working actually in high school. I was working in a hamburger place, um, Max Hamburgers in Sweden. And then there was on the way home there was an IKEA. And I was so sick of hamburgers because I was working there, but hot dogs I could <laughs> get into. So so yeah. That's that was like funny. you know five kroners which is like 50 cents pretty much 50 yeah. cent hot dogs like, i still yeah. think they're like a buck or like canadian i think they're now or maybe two bucks canadian which is like wow right. that's insane and they're, they're they're small so you can just eat i mean you can justify eating like three of them <laughs> <laughs> so so anyways that that's and, and it's so it's so fu- it's so delightful Mm-hmm. And just to, to hit on this point again, it's so if you were to present a business case now, not like let's say IKEA wasn't a thing. If you and I were presenting this business case and walking through what IKEA is today, but sort of maybe to like a, a VC, like a venture capital, and try, or maybe we're trying to get financing for this new furniture, they would laugh you out of the room and say, "This is nonsense. This doesn't. This sort of flies in the face of a lot of the 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 the, 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 the popular consumer psychology that we hear about." And yet, and this is the thing with ritual, it works. There's this magic to it. Um, and and we, we, can't, we can't sort of forget that. And then you bring Ikea home. And with uh, Mike Norton, Dan Ariely's work on the Ikea effect, which again goes back to perceived effort. Now you have this box of a bunch of shit that's in a bunch of different pieces. And I know they have TaskRabbit now, so this sort of, it depends who you are. But there is, for a good degree, a good number of people in in the population who are motivated to build that desk or that bedside table or that bookshelf. And what their research shows is that when you do that, those people, those product owners then end up liking and enjoying that product more because they put the effort in into building it. And so that could be construed as a ritual experience as well. I know for my my wife and I, my family and I, we get one of those things and we get a glass of wine and it's like, okay, get the little Allen keys out, you know, and I usually put a piece on backwards and my wife laughs at me and it's, it's a very ritualized activity for the family. <laughs> that's, that's great. And I guess, what, what do you call it when you buy a couch from Ikea, but you can't manage to get it to fit and you suddenly have lost your Ikea Allen key and then you start arguing with your partner and eventually kind of end up watching netflix in silence on the floor what do you what do you call that effect <laughs> yeah i don't know that's that's, that's, a, that's a new case well we're gonna have to consider yeah i'm joking but i think yeah i think it's interesting though because i think there's a little bit two, two sides to that right like some i have a really good experience with ikea in terms of like uh, like you say have a very ritual uh positive ritual to it but then there are also these people that are like as soon as you say you know put together ikea furniture they're kind of like have this traumatic memory from, you know, effort. It's true. It's true. And, and it, it, which speaks to a, a, a more sort of general point, which is 
the the penchant or the readiness to engage in ritual is a is itself an individual difference. So I'm actually not, um, and we can measure this, and we've done we've we've actually measured this in in a number of studies that there are people who are really quite ready to engage in ritual. Most religious people are obviously they're they're the type of person to to be motivated to ritualize an experience. And then there's other people on the opposite end who who are totally logical and they see any form of ritual as superfluous and, and frivolous and, and nonsensical. And so they, st- they steer clear of it at all cost. Um, and then you have the majority of people in the, uh, under that normal curve who are somewhere in the middle who have some, who have some rituals here and here and there. So you can measure this as an individual difference, which is also important for, for product owners and designers to know, okay, if we're looking at this, at this target audience in seg- segment, like doing a sort of a customer segmentation analysis, which of our groups are going to be the ones who are really ready and are going to throw themselves into a ritual and which of them aren't? Because you don't want a backfire effect. You don't want to propose to your, to your user or customer to do a ritual when they're not the type of person who is going to be engaged to do it in the first place. Yeah, that's super interesting. I feel like we can talk about um, IKEA for even longer than we can talk about habits versus <laughs> routines and rituals. But we're getting a little bit close to that now. And so to wrap it up, one of the things that is kind of going to be a segment that I've stolen from Tyler Cowen is this idea of underrated versus overrated. Are you familiar with this concept? No, I don't, I don't think I am. That's okay. So that's pretty much just a quick fire round of questions where I will list a couple of things. And then I will ask you if you think those things are overrated, underrated, or correctly rated by society or maybe the field that we're oh, working God. Oh God. And so I encourage controversy here. So if you say too many things that are correctly rated, then I will give you somewhat of like a nudge to be more contrarian. Uh, but I don't think that's going to be a problem. I think I you'll, be, you'll be fine. I'm happily contrarian. So, so we're going to start off a little bit soft here. So we're going to say ice hockey, overrated or underrated? <laughs> um, overrated. Cool. Doing a PhD. These are close to home, man. Uh, <laughs> overrated. Wow, two in a row. What is most overrated, hockey or PhD? <laughs> PhD. <laughs> okay. Uh, then I have like a little bit of a quick fire round within the quick fire round. And because I wanted to go through some biases with you and, and see what you think about this. So confirmation bias, overrated or underrated? Underrated. Hmm. Cool. Uh, any thoughts? Why? What are these? I just think it's so so um, omnipresent, and I think it just helps explain so so many of the problematic behaviors we see in in society today. So I don't think we can. I I know it's talked about a lot, but I I don't think we can talk enough about it and and bring it into sort of self awareness so that we can actually hopefully correct it. That's great. And so Dunning Kruger effects overrated or underrated? Ooh. And so people just just want to explain so. That's when people with low ability at a task overestimate their ability. So they don't know what they don't know. And so therefore they think they know a lot. Uh, what do you think? I feel like all the biases are going to be underrated, but can I say correctly, <laughs> Ray? Can I say correctly rated? Is that? Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. I'll say, I'll say yeah. my first, I'll save that one for that one. Uh, then loss aversion. Overrated. I will say that. I think. Okay, there we go. There we go. Yes, we got one. I, I think. Um, I think loss aversion, uh, and I know there's some interesting replication work suggesting that 
that it's that it holds and then there's other replicability work that it doesn't i think there's a lot of um, interaction and modifier effects with with loss aversion charlotte blank and her team they have an interesting case with uh car sales it's a paper in press or a preprint and uh, they show that there's a backfire effect with loss aversion so there's plenty of anyways the point being i think there's plenty of instances where loss aversion actually um, produces a null effect or a backfire effect. And so I think we need to know a little bit more of when that's when that's the case. Hmm. Yeah, I would say my confidence in in the bias, I would say I'm a little bit towards leading being more skeptical uh, than positive, so to say. That mm-hmm. I think it's... it's uh, actually, I think you've had Jason Collins speaking on your podcast and he's done a lot of good kind of overviews of, of loss yeah. aversion and and it seems to me that it would probably use it too much or talk about it a little bit too much. Um, yeah, and, and I think this holds. Sorry, I'm interrupting your rapid fire questions. I think I think this holds. Uh, this is an important lesson for biases and heuristics. And and who did I have on the show? Greg Davies, uh, which his episode will be coming out in a few weeks on on my show. Sorry to pl- sorry to plug it. Um, <laughs> that's that's rude of me. Um, he, he talks of of like how we've actually sort of got to get we got to get away from the listical approach to nudges and. And oh. and biases and or I guess more biases and heuristics, um, because there's going to be several different contexts where heuristic A makes plenty of sense to go in this direction, whereas in, in situation or context B, it makes sense to go in the other direction. And so, and so I think we need to get away as behavioral practitioners to get away from the like the toolkit approach, which is look at all these amazing biases and we can just sort of like drop them in and, and people go, oh, wow. Behavioral as behavior and behavioral science, as you said at the outset of all this, is is much more much more complex than than that. That's awesome. I was actually funny enough. That was kind of what I was going to drive towards at the end here to see if you agree with me. And I hundred percent agree as well. I would say in general biases are probably overrated in my book, as like it's seen today as this kind of like quick yeah. fix tools. Yeah, and and um, to be honest, I, the, how I do my work, I don't I don't even start from them, and then often yeah, I don't same. even use I don't even use them. To, to be totally fair, like honest with you, I, I leverage right. more of like my social psychology training, which is like, here's a broad theory of human mm. behavior. And then within there, yeah, there might be, there might be sort of a, a bias or heuristic, which helps explain as part of a proximal effect or, or a proximal v- variable that's at play. But I start big theory and, and then follow. So, so yeah. And you said you're the same. I think, I think we're, the tides are turning in that, in that way. Yeah, for sure. And that's almost like, a telltale sign of someone who's maybe new as a practitioner in the field is when they only talk about biases, you know, that, okay, this person <laughs> maybe don't have too much, you know, personal experience actually. Doing exactly, exactly, exactly. You got it. Okay, so last last one for the overrated, underrated. Starting a behavioral podcast, <laughs> overrated <laughs> or underrated? I love these. Um, oh, starting a behavioral <laughs> overrated i will say only because you've just started yours and it's it would have been underrated before you started this over now that you started it it's overrated oh you're too kind that is way too kind <laughs> i guess you know if we have too many cooks in the kitchen who knows it's you know what I, it's funny to think about but it's also interesting mm-hmm. from like just an epistemic sort of um content perspective like what is the what is the sweet spot for the best number of podcasts or blogs or journals or even like you can even apply that analysis to like the number of labs uh, of, mm. of behavioral scientists and social psychologists like there's argument that we have way too many social psychologists way too many academic labs way too many grad students that there needs to be a much smaller number and that 
sweet spot, that reduced number will actually produce and yield better results in the, in the long run. So, so maybe that applies to, po- to podcasts as well. So, so yeah, I think I never wanted to be that guy who started a podcast, honestly. And it's a little bit silly that I feel like now I am that guy. And so actually to your first reaction, which I think was a true one, uh, then you kind of spin it in a very nice, favorable way towards like saying something nice to me. But I think it's true that it's overrated in terms of, I think there are a lot of podcasts. It's real hard to make a podcast. This is going to be, we'll see how this goes, but uh, it's it's going to be fun to kind of explore. Uh, but I also think there's something to that point of like, well, at least hopefully we're going to make each other better. Uh, we're going to see how we can kind of, you know, make things different and improve and, and uh, hopefully push each other to do better work uh, as well yeah. in terms of providing value for, for people. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. That's, and and that's, that's the goal. That's the ultimate goal. That's, that's the hope that we all have as behavioral practitioners. And, and as we begin to notice like, oh, this is happening over there and there'll be sort of a, a self-correcting mechanism that hopefully exists within the field to, to trim away some of the fat that, uh, that needs to be let go of. As we ref- as we continually refine and grow as a as a field. Okay, so last question. It's kind of your final advice to the audience. And so, what I love to hear from you is, what advice would you give someone who is, I guess, getting started in the field and maybe wants to run their own consultancy of sort at some point? Uh, what kind of advice would you provide? Can I ask uh, just a clarifying question? Is is it sure. somebody who's uh, say a personal? So you're saying like an independent consultant, like you or I, kind of thing. Maybe not now, but maybe they are either in, I guess there's usually two types of people getting into the field. So either they're coming from studies, so they have been doing their uh, master's or PhD or something, and then maybe they want to break into more work in the public or private sector. Or they're already working in public, private. They have maybe one leg in product development and one leg in behavioral science, for example, mm. and they want to make, make a little more further leg into just focusing on behavioral science and getting into kind of becoming a full-on like successful behavioral uh, mm-hmm. practitioner mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of making a leap i guess it's a leap both ways and maybe you can choose one if you feel more comfortable yeah i, I guess that that was kind of what i was getting at i guess I w- i'll answer that in fr- from my own experience and my own background which is coming from academia in, into practice and so my my advice there would be don't don't discount don't discount the the knowledge you you gain from from academia and that could be sort of the the direct content knowledge of theories um it can also be the the more experiential knowledge or the procedural knowledge of running experiments doing statistics modeling data that that is of high value i think that's high value work for a lot of people um and then this uh, and the second thing which applies to both both audiences is or both samples is uh writing work on writing become a good writer I think that's, I think that's essential, and, and that of course that 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 cuts across any and all industry. But writing, communicating, in general, is is uh, you know the, the, those are the winners in any field, and I think those are those are going to be the winners in if if it's a competition, those are going to be the winners of of the behavioral science field as well as people who can communicate clearly, effectively, and 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 persuasively. That's great, and so obviously to become a great writer, you have to write and you have to do the practice, do the work. But is there any book or resource that you recommend for becoming a better writer? Yeah, uh, Stephen King has a great one on. I can't remember the, the name of it, but his. Uh-huh. Uh, then there's on writing. I think I know which one. You yeah, mean. yeah. It's like his only one that's not a that's not a horror, like a fictional horror 
uh, story. Although <laughs> <Sure. laughs> yeah. it could be, I could, it could be a horror story for a lot of. I have it's a night. I have nightmares about writing still, and I write every day. Mm. And then on writing well is probably the biggest go-to one. I think it's and it's right. It's by and it's written long, long time ago in the sixties or fifties. It's by Will Zinser on writing well, and it uh, William Zinser. It is, it is the best. I think still. And it's just got tons of little, great little advice of, of, uh, of, of how to write convincing copy. It's great. Mm. Well, that's some great advice. I'll add that to the show notes. And so to wrap it up, I guess I just want to say what's funny here is that there's somewhat of a meaningful sort of coincidence in play here, where the second ever podcast that I personally was part of, you know, being guest was. Uh, being a guest on your podcast. And this is the second episode of this podcast. Uh, so I feel like that's a very beautiful little uh, coincidence. And to that point, I guess I just want to finish saying that pretty much thank you for your wonderful work in spreading how to become a ba better behavioral practitioner. Uh, I obviously can relate to the kind of feeling of it not being easy to start a podcast or something like that. But you... Did it, and and I think what's been really fun to see is just how quickly things has evolved from from you kind of starting your podcast to where it is today, and clearly you've providing a lot of value and benefit beyond obviously your amazing work as a practitioner as well. So thanks for giving back to the community, and thanks for this conversation. Well, thanks. The thanks is is all mine, and 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 uh, my job is easy as a podcast host to have guests like you on and and all the amazing people that I have on. I'm yet to have one one crappy guest. I'm still waiting. So I'm really fortunate to be in that position, and and it's it's an absolute pleasure. And thanks for having me on as, as number two. <laughs> it's been an honor, Sam. Thanks. And that was the last podcast episode of the year, folks. Pretty great way to finish, right? I think Nick is fantastic, and I encourage checking out his podcast and the rest of his wonderful work. He's also a great follow on LinkedIn too. And I really yeah, encourage you to check out the show notes for further details on Nick. Well, they say that the end of one thing is the beginning of something else. So as we end this year, I'm happy to say that the Behavioral Design Podcast will be back in the new year with some exciting announcements. And I would also say that it's been amazing to see the response so far. We're still less than 10 episodes in, and I've received so many positive messages and notes, and obviously a lot of people listening. So I really appreciate that, and I can't wait to share what's to come for the podcast in 2021 with you all. Until then, I want to wish you a happy new year, and here's to uh, 2021 a bit better than the 2020 we've all had. Cheers.